0: Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson.
1: Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek I work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non-technical audiences. And you can learn more about that at teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Lucy Shen. She's a developer advocate. What does that mean? No clue, but I'm pretty sure she'll (laughs) fill me in when I ask her. And she was an engineer at one point as well. And I also learned she's into cosplay. I'm. I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right. So you...
0: <laughs> I see Elisa completely sold me out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, you know, I don't know what it means. So I'll definitely ask her about that too. And from the bit of research I did on her, I, I, I saw she's a musician as well. I mean, what does she not do? She's making me feel lazy. So <laughs> <laughs> let's get into it. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Lucy.
0: Hello, nice to meet you, Neil. Good to have you. Uh, rather, thank you for having me. Oh my God. I went into <laughs> podcast mode myself. I was like, I'm the host now. This is my podcast. Good to have you, Neil.
1: Yes, we're we're doing things in reverse.
0: Oh my goodness. <laughs> Hustle takeover.
1: No doubt. So I saw from the from the, the research I did on you that you have you got your degree in computer science. So what was the motivation to get that degree?
0: For sure, I actually amusingly, um, and I know this is buying into a little bit of a stereotype, but my parents were probably the only Chinese parents I knew who didn't want me to get a computer science degree, (laughs) but I ended up with one anyway. Um, I went into college thinking I was going to do theater or film or journalism, actually, because that was like my thing in high school. And then I took a CS 101 class, basically, in the first year and just kind of fell in love with the discipline. It was just like it came so naturally to me. I had no idea. It was so much like problem solving. Um, and then once I got those gears turning in my brain, there was no shutting it off. So I just went ahead and uh, finished the whole degree. <laughs> wow.
1: You know, I, I, I did engineering when I was in school and I had to take a a computer science class the first semester. And that was my worst class. And it was the class I liked the least. And I remember thinking I well, I remember I remember it so I remember it so vividly. And it wasn't I don't remember it fondly. It was a whole lot of, of failure of me trying to do things and it just not working and me just thinking i don't have the patience for this so computer science computer engineering that definitely was not the path that i was going to take just based on based on that but i'm glad that there are people like you that do have the patience to see their programs come to fruition
0: it's the failure that makes it worth it in the end because after you've failed like 50 times trying to get your code to work, when it finally, finally does work, it's that payoff. <laughs> I get so much like, I don't know what it is, dopamine, serotonin, something's going on in the brain. Um, The reward centers light up, so yeah.
1: You know, I I also mentioned in the intro that you're a developer advocate. So what exactly does a developer advocate do?
0: It's a good question. It's a pretty new role in the tech industry. Um, I would say that like, I, I guess the need arose because a lot of developers uh, started to use like APIs from other companies, right? Where companies started to offer technical solutions to a lot of people. And so our customers became technical in many ways across the industry. And that's where we needed developer advocates to step in and become kind of the interface for our technical customers and the company. Um, So for example, in my case at at Intuit, working on third-party APIs. Um, And so in order to help developers get a grasp on like how to get that working for the, if they were to run into a bug or not have access to a good demo, that would obviously provide kind of a bad customer experience. And our technical customers are just as much our customers as anyone else. So um, we we provide the support basically and close the feedback loop on that front. So we, re- we represent the voice of the developer to the company and then we represent the company back to the developer.
1: Okay. Interesting. I mean, I also mentioned that you were an engineer at one point. So what what prompted your, your switch from engineer to developer advocate?
0: Yeah, I was an engineer for a good, like, four years almost, Um, and the switch kind of happened. I had been thinking about it for a while. I actually was thinking about switching into product management specifically. Um, There was just a general sense that, like, I really enjoyed doing developer education. I used to work on a platform team, which meant that we served both technical and non-technical customers, and we had to onboard them onto our platform. Um, And it was that onboarding work, actually, and documentation work, which I know makes me sound like an alien, but, like, one of my favorite parts of the work was the documentation and the teaching aspect. Um, which I I think naturally filled into that role on my team because nobody else liked to do it. And that's generally what I see. The pattern is that like most developers do not enjoy doing developer education and documentation. But for me, that was like what I enjoyed the most. Um, Unfortunately, as much as it was valued by my team because no one else wanted to do it and I was like glad to step into it, um, it's not really the kind of thing that's rewarded by engineering rubrics, right? So when the career ladder comes into play, like this isn't the kind of work I was going to get promoted for. Um, And so as much as I knew I wasn't going to have trouble getting promoted, it still felt like the bulk of my favorite part of the work wasn't being recognized by my main job function. And so I, I started to look for something that would reward that kind of work more. And I started to gravitate towards product management, but that's when Alisa, <laughs> the person who recommended me to you, um, that's when she stepped in and told me about this new role that she was working on. Um, at the time it was technical evangelist, but that's it, technical evangelist and developer advocate are kind of two sides of the same coin um, with the goal of becoming much more in the developer advocate side of things in the long run. And so she pulled me onto her team um, and that's I mean, the the rest of the story is just my job since then. So.
1: Okay. That's interesting. So. To work as a developer advocate is it a benefit to having a technical background I mean is it possible to do to be a developer advocate without having a technical background
0: I'm sure it's possible, but I feel like it'd be really hard because a lot of the job um, and my job is still very much, a, okay, every developer advocate's job is kind of different. But I think without the technical backing, it's a little bit hard to communicate with developers, honestly, because um, developers have a certain way of communicating with each other. And a lot of it is founded entirely on like how the code works. And if you're not able to explain that to people, then there's kind of no point, I guess, in you being a developer advocate. Um, because you would have to go through, you'd have to jump through a lot of hoops just to learn what you needed to teach, I guess, to put it simply.
1: Okay. Well, what's the career path for someone who's a developer advocate?
0: Good question. I'm still trying to, it's such a new role. I think a lot of us are still trying to figure that out for ourselves. A lot of developer advocates are kind of influencers, which is really interesting. Um, Little micro celebrities in their own right on the internet uh, because developer advocates aren't, you know, necessarily it's about developer education and communication. And so a lot of them, um present at conferences a lot they'll have their own youtube channels or their own podcasts uh or they'll i mean that's just like kind of the 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 line of work that comes in with this skill set um and so i don't know if that's necessarily a career path but that's where a lot of the most high profile people in this field end up and so i think it a lot of us end up looking to them almost as role models but i will say it's not the only path like i think a lot of the best developer advocates i've met in my years doing this so far um, haven't been influencers. They just kind of, you know, uh, you don't have to yourself be the face of the company or the face of the technology. You can just be the person who enables other people to understand how to use it. And you don't necessarily have to be the person who's doing the teaching necessarily. So uh, if I were to, for example, uh, a lot of our Intuit open source projects that are happening right now, like my job as a dev advocate isn't to personally present on what all of those projects are and how to use them and why you should want to use them and how to adopt them. Um, But to make room and create a platform so that our open source maintainers can themselves go and bring it to the big stage, right? So um, the influencer path isn't for everyone, nor is it the only way to go forward. But I I will say it's the most high profile way to do it. And I think it may be what brings a lot of people into the field. Um, I think in the long run, a lot of dev advocates, it's kind of a strange career ladder in that I don't know that it necessarily has a ladder um probably eventually you end up more like a pm (laughs) because a lot of our jobs kind of overlap with product management I mean I talked about how I was thinking about going into product management in the first place and I have product manager training also at this point um and the two roles are very similar in many ways it's just that dev advocates are almost like a more like technical I guess product manager um so I don't know you could really take it anywhere you want but I will say that like probably amongst the most You know, the the end game, the high flying people that I know, they end up as like basically directors of like their company's developer advocacy organizations. Um, And that's usually where I see people, I guess, without for lack of a better term, end up because this this role, again, is so new. We don't actually know what the end game looks like yet.
1: Wow! I commend you for taking on a role where. You're not exactly sure where it's going to end up. You know, there's a lot of people that kind of want that certainty. If I if I start wow. off in this place, I know there's, there's this there's this there is this career path. There's this ladder that I can go up. I go I start here, then I go here, then I go here, mm-hmm. and then I end up here. And and then you're at, and then this is what I need to do to to move up this ladder. But with you, you're kind of you're starting at, at a place and not knowing where it's going to go afterwards. And I think that's actually really cool that, that you, you were willing to take that risk. I think it's
0: exciting to like forge a new path, right? And I like on my current team right now, we're into its first developer advocacy team. Like we've never really had one before. Um, that's what Elisa was starting to build while she was still here, but it's still so nascent. Like we're getting to define what this team does. And I feel like building a charter from scratch is part of what makes the work interesting. Um, and having, you know, there are a few, definitely a few role models, a few trailblazers that we can follow. Um, But there's also a lot that we can decide for ourselves. And I think the flexibility is what makes the job interesting. Um, And it's so different, right, from the developer role where everything was actually kind of cut and dried in terms of your career path. There's certainly lots of room for flexibility and creativity within the developer role. But in terms of like where your career is going, there's kind of only a few, like you become the tech lead or an engineering manager, and then you either go down that people management path or like the architect path, right? Right. Um, it's very very well defined but I think the lack of definition is what makes the role interesting so for me at least that's what makes it fun yeah
1: well yeah well it's, it's as I said it's it's great to have people like you that are willing to take on that that I mean the the, the fact that there isn't that de- that there's there isn't that definition and and you have to kind of build it as you go because as, there's a lot of people like I want it more structured but if, especially if you're someone like yourself who's involved with the creation of it and how it, it ends up being, I think that's really exciting. So I agree, exactly.
0: That, that's
1: yeah. really cool. You know, I, I'm also mentioning the intro that you're, that you're into cosplay. Did I pronounce that right, Lucy? You
0: did. You did say it correctly, yeah. So w-
1: what is cosplay and how did you get into it?
0: Yeah, it's uh, probably one of my top, ho- most time-consuming hobbies, I'll put it that way. Um, but cosplay is a portmanteau word of costume and play. Um, And it actually originated probably in like East Asia, probably mostly in Japan. I haven't honestly looked into the history of it that much, but it comes from wanting to dress up as your favorite anime characters or game characters. Um, So for me, at least it started with uh, a certain anime. uh, Sorry, it was actually a manga, a manga called Kathekyo Hitman Reborn that I really got into when I was in middle school. And then my friend who got me into it was like, hey, you want to dress up as the characters from this manga? And I was like, what the heck? Why would I do that? And she was like, oh, well, actually there are these... Like conventions that happen through the year where people who also really love these anime and manga will congregate together and a lot of times people you don't have to but a lot of people will wear costumes of their favorite characters um just as an expression of love for the art form i guess and to identify each other in the crowd right because at a glance i can see oh that person is also a fan of the exact same franchise because they're wearing this costume um so it's a little bit of like a signaling finding each other and also just a, a way of expressing your love for something um and i think it also really gets the the crafters ears turning in my brain when you, sometimes it's nice to just put your hands to something physical and make something like create something right um back in high school and middle school is when i had time to do that kind of thing nowadays i i buy or commission most of my cosplays and just wear them for fun um but i think that art of that the part of creation and expressing love together in community with people is what makes cosplay so fun
1: interesting so it's like halloween without begging people for exactly candy.
0: it's halloween for us all year <laughs> for cosplay. Yep. and That's then hello Hall- the funny part is halloween comes around and none of us know what to wear <laughs> Are you serious? Because <laughs> we're all like, it's so niche, you know? Like, oh, I'm going to wear this really niche cosplay that only like like 20 people at this convention are going to know, let alone if I were to go out on Halloween and like, because Halloween, you want something people will recognize, right? Or like kind of a joke of a costume in many cases. So we always have to sit there and like have a headache try to figure it out. That's
1: hilarious. So 364 days is a year. You know exactly what the costume is going to be, but yes. for that one day, you know, October We're 31st, it's loss. like I don't know. No, no, we have no clue. That's hilarious. <laughs> wow, that's 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 in, that's so interesting. I I, don't, I really don't know much about about that. So thank you for that for that explanation of cosplay. Now you know, yeah. learn something it's new every day.
0: <laughs> very deep into nerd and geek culture. If that's your thing, um, everyone eventually ends up there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, this 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 podcast is called Teach the Geek. So you would exactly. think I, I would know a little bit more about that. But I guess maybe I'm not as much of a geek as I think I am. <laughs> there are all
0: kinds of geeks in the world. Yeah.
1: Indeed, there are. You know, I, I mentioned also in the intro that, that you're, I believe you're a musician as well. So if I'm right about that, how'd you get into that?
0: Uh, Well, I was one of those, not to constantly invoke the Chinese parent stereotypes right now, but um, my, my parents had me learn piano, basically, as I was growing up. Um, But ultimately, that's not where I ended up. I ended up in the world of like vocal music. So I really like doing singing um, and songwriting also, but that's a little bit of a different track. And uh, I don't know, at some point, I just realized that like, I enjoyed singing, and then I would do it a lot. And then eventually got kind of good at it, because that's what happens when you do something a lot. Um, So I started to sing like covers on YouTube back in 2011. I started to post them and then slowly the quality again, as you do something a lot, you get better at it. (laughs) And so the quality of my covers and original music started to get better and better. And so as I explored it as a hobby, um, I don't know, it just kind of grew from there. So now I I also, and similar to cosplay, it's a a space where I found a community of people there. It turns out there's a whole community of people singing nerdy Japanese music online from like their favorite animes, which is kind of the genre that I was focused in for quite a few years there. Um, And then we, once we found each other on, mostly it was on, oh my God, back in the day it was on Skype and then it was on Twitter. And now the whole community is still on Twitter. So um, it's just fun to be singing with people, I guess. So we'll like, we'll do collaborations, covers, courses, duets together a lot. Um, and I, I just continue to make friends in this space because people will approach me and be like, you want to sing this song together? And I'm like, sure. And in that process, you get to know people really well and usually get to take on like a fun challenge of a song that you haven't sung before. Right.
1: Have you ever yeah. partnered with somebody who after when when you're part of the, you know, going through the whole process of singing, you realize they're not that good?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think there's definitely differences in skill level, um, but I guess what you realize is that like it's not so much about skill or how obviously you would want to sing with someone who is like more impressive. Right. Um, and I've also been the person in these duets where I'm the the weaker skill level. <laughs> um, but I don't think it matters in the end because the point is that you're like you agreed to sing with someone because you wanted to sing the song together for whatever reason, whether it was from an anime that you loved or because you like this person's personality and you wanted an excuse to do a project with them. Um, there are a variety of reasons you might sing together with someone. And I think uh, it's also just natural that people have different skill levels. What's more interesting, actually, in a duet is whether your voices blend together well. Um, so whether or not you can hit those notes at the optimal, I don't know, belting chest voice or whatever isn't so much important as it is like when you sing in unison, do you sound good together? I think that's always the fun thing is when I in- inadvertently run into people who I actually blend really well with. And I'm like, I wouldn't have expected that. But here we are. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. And Yeah, I would expect the person who is the weaker link to say it doesn't (laughs) matter. The person who's really good, like, you know what? I've I've been both
0: the weaker link as well as the stronger one. So (laughs) I I guess I've had a taste of both sides.
1: Nice. That's wonderful. You know, Lucy, when I first started this podcast, the the, the main focus or the, the reason I did it is based on my own struggles, having to give presentations in front of others, working as an engineer and Mm -hmm. And these people that I had to give presentations were in front of were the senior management people. So CEO, CTO, COO, C fill in the blank, O, all the C's. And I wasn't very good at it at first. And I got a lot better at it over time because I I saw the benefit in doing so. And so I really was interested in in hearing from other people, other people that had technical backgrounds about their public speaking journeys. At what point did you realize that public speaking or, or giving better presentations could be of use to you?
0: Oh my god, I guess I actually kind of have an origin story for this, which is that back in third grade, (laughs) we did... Uh, we started to do like speeches, or our teacher would have us do speeches. I-, I don't think this was part of the formal curriculum by any means, but she just, I guess, knew that public speaking was going to be an important skill. Um, I still remember her, Miss August. <laughs> she would, she got us to uh, choose speech. She would like give us a, a genre, I think, and then we would choose a speech topic and then give a speech. I think the time it was like a three to five minute speech on a topic, which is quite long for someone who is in third grade. <laughs> um, I just remember that the moment my mom heard about what was happening, because I, I tell, I, I've always, since very young, always talked to my mom about everything that was happening in my life. And so the moment the speech thing came up, I went to my mom and I was like, oh, we have to give speeches in school. I think it's going to be really fun. And then she just latched onto it and like coached me with extreme pressure, I must say, at high standards um through my first like three or so speeches um where literally she would have me like drill it in front of her the speech until I had it down pat and also was flowing it was flowing naturally conversationally she also had me warm it warm in a bunch of like jokes and I still remember the response I got to that first speech I ever gave in third grade where like everyone else was you know understandably very nervous had never done this before probably hadn't had a mother who drilled it with them for 50 times the night before um and I stood up and with like utmost confidence um delivered this like flawless three-minute speech. I don't even know what it was about anymore. Um, It had jokes in it. People were like laughing. I got big applause at the end, right? And after that, I was like, oh, I mean, I hated the drilling. I was like, why are we doing this? Like, why does it matter so much? I still remember thinking like, why why is she so intent on getting me to perfect this? It's just a silly little speech that we're doing. Um, But after that, I was like, wow, okay, public speaking is how I have influence. I think it's the lesson that I learned that day. Um I, I didn't have no idea what charisma meant yet at that time, but I think that was the first step towards building like the charisma that I now leverage like naturally as a daily tool. Um, it was that like the 50 drills that my mom ran with me the night before that speech and then delivering the speech and like learning the value of it instantly, right? The instant reward of that. I was like, oh, this is something that's important. Um, and through it all, the more I did it, I think we gave probably a good five speeches that that year in third grade. By the end of it, I realized that like so much of it came down to delivering things naturally, having a sense, not necessarily, you don't have to be funny, but you have to have a sense of humor, right? A lightness to your delivery um, so that you carry people along with you. Uh, This was the kind of skill that I I learned the value of it in third grade. I wasn't good at it yet, but over time, it just like became a skill that I built because I knew the importance of it, like you said.
1: Wow. That's, that's really cool. And Sounds like your mother is is similar to my mother. So (laughs) so when I was a kid, I used to give presentations as well. And it wasn't because I wanted to. It was because either it was was assigned in school or it was something that it was even extracurricular that my mother signed me up for. So I would find out about it after she had signed me up for it. You're going to be doing this.
0: Yeah, I'd be like, oh, (laughs) uh,
1: wonderful. So then also like your mother, there was a lot of drilling, a, a lot of practicing and Looking back on it, it, it doesn't make any sense because I'm not an only child. I have two other siblings, and they didn't—they never didn't do any of this stuff. Like, so I was thinking, why me?
0: Why, why yeah, I feel you. Me? I had a younger brother also who was spared this. <laughs> <laughs> I was a perfectly a, adequate public speaker, so clearly it wasn't necessary.
1: But... Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. I have an older sister, I have a younger sister, and I'm the only boy, but so, but maybe oh. that was the reason. But she left them alone, but it was always me. It's like. <laughs> And I, and I was a lazy child too, Lucy. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, she if she didn't force me to do stuff, I wouldn't do a thing. Even now as an adult. Oh, I have to motivate myself so much to that's actually it. get up and do stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's my life. So but uh, you know, when it comes to the the presentations that you have to do or that that you do, mm-hmm. do you have a process for putting them together? And if so, what is it?
0: Yeah, it really depends on the presentation. I will say that I have my my webinars and podcasts down to a science. <laughs> so like you, I also host a podcast, but it's for work. It's not a personal one. Um, and when the time comes, eventually everyone leaves the company, I will also hand it off. So it's not my podcast to take with me, but currently I'm the host. Um, and I think I do a pretty similar process with the podcast and webinars, which is that I think anything that involves a guest um, is I, I like to set it up. I like to be like very structured with it because I think a lot of times when you bring on guests, this is, this is different, right? Like you literally bring on public speakers to your podcast for the podcast where you're bringing on engineers and people who are not accustomed to public speaking. I feel like it, the most important thing is to get people situated and comfortable and feel like they know what to expect. So basically like an expectation setting kind of a procedure because these are people who are, again, not accustomed to speaking in front of a live audience or in front of a camera even. So they get really um, early on. I I learned this lesson the hard way, I guess, where if I underprepared people, they would get really nervous, really jittery. The lines would come out kind of of funny, or they would try to pre-script everything and just like read off of a script in a very robotic voice. So I was like, "Mm, this is not going to (laughs) work. And so the process with podcasts and webinars, when I have guests who are usually technical and usually not very well-versed of public speaking, is I'll have a document set up where I have all of the questions that I, Plan to ask them written out beforehand. Um, And I tell them very clearly, like, we want to keep the tone conversational, but I'm also giving you the questions beforehand so that you can prepare, annotate your answers a little bit. And I'd like you to use bullet points so that you're not literally reading a script off, but at least you know where you're going. You're not going to get lost. um, And you'll be hopefully minimally nervous because you already know. And maybe if you wanted to, you had a chance to rehearse as well. Um, And I find that that really helps to assuage the kind of anxiety that a lot of people come into this with because then they want to do public speaking, they want recognition for their work. Um, they want that kind of like in the public eye experience, but at the same time, they're very anxious and nervous about it. So whatever I can do to help strike a balance between like wanting to deliver, getting them to the point where they are saying what they want to say with the minimal anxiety, because they've been prepped and we've done, you know, one quick driver run session beforehand as well um that's of course to me it also organizes my thoughts like it forces me to sit down and spend 30 minutes to an hour like preparing the flow of a conversation so i know where it's going to go and i can manage it better um and obviously we can still you know change course change tack in the middle of a conversation and i, I tell them that i'm like i might shuffle the question order i might ask you follow-up questions because we want to keep it natural um but at the same time people have a document that they're able to follow along with and be minimally nervous for so i think um since these are situations in which I am not the sole presenter, but I have other people that I'm interviewing um, and they are not as comfortable in front of a camera as I am. Uh, it's important to get them as close to that as possible. Yeah.
1: I commend you for your empathy, Lucy. I don't have it. <laughs> You're I, like, I don't care. <laughs> I I really don't. I I'm, I'm a firm believer in organic type conversations. And those mm-hmm. are really difficult to have when you know what the questions are beforehand, because oftentimes Mm. all you're doing is giving me rehearsed answers and then it's not all that fun for me and it's not all that fun for the audience anyway. But So sometimes when people ask me for the question beforehand, I may very well send them the questions and then I don't ask them those questions Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm.
1: because I'm a jerk like like These
0: are the kinds of questions you might get is also like it. Just so people know what to expect. Oh, no, no,
1: I don't even do that. I say, no, these are going to be the questions.
0: Oh, you just lied to them.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I lie. Yeah, absolutely. I love then, it. Yes. And then and then it's they strange. get completely different questions. Absolutely. Oh, you mm-hmm. thought you were prepared? Ah, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. It's so much fun for me.
0: <laughs> as long as you're having fun, honestly, it's your podcast. Indeed.
1: I so. am I'm, I'm, I'm over 200 episodes in. I'm, I'm still doing it. I love it. It's, it's, exactly. it's great for me. So when it comes to giving presentations, do you ever get nervous? And if so, how do you um, deal with your nerves?
0: Yeah, I actually have never gotten over the stage fright. Like, I think uh, with like web podcasts, actually, I'm minimally nervous because it's all pre-recorded, and I know if I really mess up, I'll just beg the host to like edit something out. (laughs) Um, But with live things like webinars, I still get a little bit nervous, right? Um, I I don't know what it is. Like all the I did theater in high school too. I did performance arts in college. Like for some reason, the stage fright never leaves you. But I think at some point what I realized is that my so-called stage fright or this feeling of like anxiety was also excitement. Like it was both. I was excited to be going on stage in front of the camera. Um I was excited to have a chance to like showcase whatever it was I had been practicing in front of an audience. Um and so I think over time I just learned to interpret my anxiety and my stage fright as excitement and uh, the whole thing it just made it more fun it's kind of like you know the 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 joke people tell where they're like oh like when you want to take someone on a date uh take them to the amusement park because they will misconstrue their uh anxiety or their their fr- their fear about going on a on a thrill ride as uh like infatuation with you I'm like that's exactly what I've done but with stage fright so instead of interpreting it as I'm afraid to go on stage it's I'm excited to go on stage and that's kind of how things have uh I think eventually it just became like a it was like a prophecy that i guess what's the word when the prophecy life fulfills itself that's kind of what it is okay yeah
1: although i i will disagree with you when it when it comes to a date i'm not taking them to the amusement park <laughs> i'm taking them to the swimming pool
0: oh i see
1: <laughs> i want to know what you really look like for real <laughs> <laughs> dunk your head get it get it get, it, get everything mm-hmm. wet Absolutely. you know
0: nowadays they make waterproof makeup so i don't know if that's gonna work <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Boiled <laughs> again.
1: Boiled <laughs> again for real. Damn. How do you even write in real life? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How,
0: how, how, how waterproof is it? <laughs> now you know, now you know.
1: <laughs> Damn. All right. Well, then. So when it comes to the people who are listening or watching this, this conversation and they want to get better at giving better presentations, what would your number one tip be?
0: Hmm, number one tip to get better at presentations. That's a good question.
1: As opposed I to think, all the other questions I've asked?
0: Okay, wait, sorry, what?
1: As opposed to all the other questions I've I asked? I mean, they're are really the good, good questions? questions, but this is yeah. the only
0: one that stumped me a little bit so far. <laughs> like, you got me with this one. Um, I think that this, uh, for me, at least, it comes down to, I think... So much. I OK, I, I guess I'll I'll kind of pivot it slightly, uh, which is that the way I thought about good presenters and people who I really wanted to watch on stage or talk or whatever, whatever setting it is, I wanted to watch them talk. I really wanted to listen. These were the people who had like an unholy amount of charisma. <laughs> and I've always wondered, like, where does that charisma come from? Um, And I think everyone's source of charisma is different. So probably like, and everyone has a natural charisma about them. Some people tamp it down without realizing because they're so worried and anxious about things. They like, don't let it show. But I think everyone has a natural charisma and everyone's charisma comes from a different place. For me, what I realized is that mine came from this like sort of almost carefree attitude. I have like an ease about me and a relaxed nature. Um, and an ease like a like a like a big smile that comes very naturally to me. And I think that's like the combination of what makes my charisma shine. But I think everyone's is different. And I think solving for and searching for that your natural charisma, not trying to force something on top of you. Right. Um, Finding what makes you shine naturally is I know it's a very like hand wavy answer to the question. And it's also probably the hardest question to answer in the world of public speaking. But for me, at least that's once I had pinpointed that that's what made me charismatic. Um, I was able to lean into those things, figure out where I might overshoot and overdo it versus like basically striking the right balance in like how I can be casual, but also professional, right? Relaxed, but not overly so. Um, Smiling a lot, but not so much that I look like the joker. Like (laughs) this is finding the balance for me, um, I think was what made me comfortable because I knew what was going to work for me. Um, I knew my toolkit, right? And so learning your tools and then polishing those tools is uh, what makes you uniquely a good presenter is the key.
1: Yeah. All right. Yes. Number one tip. Be charismatic. Simple. <laughs>
0: yeah, I guess. Be charismatic. Figure <laughs> it out, fool. It's like, yeah, be good. Yeah, okay.
1: Gotcha. Just, just be good. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> this has been a great conversation, Lucy. Thank you so much for being a guest. How can people get in touch with you?
0: Um, I I, I guess I've started a professional Twitter now, finally, that I can put out there. So I'm at Spoolians on Twitter. That's S-P-O-O-L-E-A-N-S. Spolians. Oh. Okay,
1: excellent. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek Interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the founder of Teach the Geek, and you can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Lucy.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like. On any of your favorite podcast platforms, or on all of them. Also, if you prefer to watch the episodes, head on over to the YouTube channel at youtube.teaspegeek.com. Until next time,